0: North Korea Say Cheese, you're on Instagram today, Wednesday, February 27th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Foreign reporters in North Korea can now tweet and post Instagram photos from their mobile phones. One photographer posted a picture of a popular snack there.
1: They bring out these dried fish and they just rip these things apart and... uh... It's a very common snack to have with beer.
0: Also today, we hear from Beppe Grillo, the former comedian, who's shaking things up in Italy. (laughs) Plus what Pope Benedict is giving up as he steps down.
2: His gold ring, crucially his fisherman's ring, will be removed from him and the papal seal will be destroyed.
3: E.R.I.s. the world, is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com.
0: Hi, Marco Werman. This is The World. The political crisis in Italy continues to rattle the Eurozone today, and we'll hear in a moment why the gridlock produced by the Italian elections is provoking such anxiety in Europe and elsewhere. But first, a little more about the man at the center of this Italian political drama. Former comedian Beppe Grillo was the big winner of this election. His anti establishment five star movement got about 25% of the seats in Parliament. That means Grillo could, if he wanted to, act as a power broker. Leaders on either the left or the right could form a ruling coalition based on his support, but no dice. Grillo rejects all coalitions. And as for the way forward, here's what he said today in an interview with the BBC.
4: Today
5: in Italy, what's going to happen is the same thing that's happened before. The left and the right will come together, and together they'll govern a country in ruins, ruins that they are responsible for. And how long will it last? One
0: year, maximum. Then elections once again. And this movement will change the world. Grillo was asked by the BBC if what he really wanted was to bring down Italy's political system with a revolution. He said the revolution has already started and can't be stopped. In fact, he's fond of saying that Italy's politicians are already dead. They just don't know it. Now, the leader of Italy's center-left, Luigi Bersani, said he welcomed coalition talks with the five-star movement, but Grillo responded by calling him dead man talking. You can hear the old comedian in that line. In fact, while we Americans had never heard of Grillo until now, he's been skewering Italian politicians on both the left and right for decades. Here's a TV clip from 20 years ago in
1: 1993.
0: We should throw them in jail, right? All the politicians. Everyone.
5: That's the solution, right? And then each one of us should go and spend half an hour in jail too. Each one of us, because we're the ones who've been voting them in for 20 years. Come on, all of us in jail. At least for half an hour.
0: Come on. (laughs) Grillo has never been shy about getting personal with his politician jokes either. When longtime Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi underwent liposuction surgery years ago, Grillo quipped that the doctors might have actually suctioned part of his brain by mistake. Still, the success of Grillo's movement at the ballot box now is not based on jokes alone. He's tapped into real anger among Italian voters over austerity, the mix of budget cuts and tax hikes that Italy's current prime minister, Mario Monti, has enacted at the behest of European leaders. But in his BBC interview today, Grillo said he's done more than just tap into that anger.
4: Noi abbiamo creato in questa rabbia, and in, in rabbia la
5: speranza, the hope. We have transformed that rage and given it hope.
4: There was no hope before. It
5: was a rage without hope. And rage without hope creates violence, right? But the rage with hope is different. It's optimistic, not negative. This is a contained rage, and they should thank us for that. It's a democratic
0: rage, and that helps us to move forward. You'll see. You'll see. That was Beppe Grillo speaking to the BBC today. The former comedian may command the respect of Italian voters and politicians now, but a top opposition leader in Germany called him a clown. To be fair, what the German politician said was that he was shocked that two clowns won the Italian elections. The second clown he was referring to was Berlusconi, whose center-right alliance did better than expected at the polls. That may not have been the most diplomatic way to express dismay about the election results, but it does highlight Europe's anxiety when it comes to what's happening in Italy. The world's Clark Boyd has more.
6: European leaders had a good thing going with Mario Monti leading Italy a technocrat committed to the European agenda of austerity and reform. Monti, it was felt, was making progress in getting Italy's economy back on track. But Monti and his followers failed to make their case to Italian voters.
2: The thing they didn't explain is why it's necessary for Italy to face its austerity measures in order to stay within the Eurozone.
6: Paola Subacchi is a research director at Chatham House in London. She says that instead, Italians chose the kind of anti-Europe rhetoric embraced by Silvio Berlusconi's party and Beppe Grillo's five-star movement.
2: The five-stars movement has expressed the mood of the nation, and I think it's the nation which says 60% of people thinks that the euro hasn't been such a good thing for Italy. But the thing is there are no proposals and policies and ideas on how to move the country out of this deadlock.
6: And so Italy faces a potentially lengthy period of political instability. Well, even more political instability than usual. After all, Italians have gone to the polls more than 60 times since the end of World War II. But this latest episode comes at a critical economic juncture for the country. And the result, political gridlock, is anything but cause for optimism, says Paul Mortimer-Lee of BNP Paribas.
7: It's very bad for Italian growth. Firms will delay investment. Households will delay big-ticket purchases. Foreigners will put less money in Italy. The rating agencies will be thinking, do we downgrade Italy? And Italian borrowing costs will rise substantially. This is going to knock a half to one percent off Italian growth this year. And this is an economy that's already <laughs> shrinking. And that's not
6: just bad news for Italy. The country is the third-largest economy in the Eurozone. Johann von Overtfeld is the author of The End of the Euro.
7: Italy is close to 20% of the eurozone economy, uh, which means that if things start to go really bad there, we will feel it very much in all the other eurozone countries. But of course, the rest of the world will also feel uh, the impact of that kind of
6: problem. And that means here in the United States as well. The economic recovery here is shaky. Massive budget cuts loom at the end of this week, our own kind of self-imposed austerity measures. Throw in a new bout of economic crisis in Europe, And you're bound to get a bit queasy if you're, say, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, says Stephen Englander of Citibank in New York.
5: If you're Ben Bernanke, you're probably sitting at the Fed saying, look, you know, this isn't over. There's still the potential for very negative shocks to come from outside the U.S. And we need this buffer to make sure that
6: our economy, which is just beginning to get its footing, uh, doesn't get hit by, by these shocks from abroad. In public, most European officials are expressing the hope that Italy can form a government and get on with its reforms. But that doesn't sound like something many Italians are interested in right now. And in other countries that have been through the ravages of austerity in the past few years, there is sympathy. Some in Greece, for example, are now asking, where's our Beppe Grillo? Anton LaGuardia is with The Economist in Brussels. He says the Italian election results are a rude awakening for leaders in Brussels and Berlin.
3: It's easier to
5: bully smaller countries like Greece. It's much harder to bully Italy because if Italy goes down, it's too big to save, too big to bail out. And frankly, it's probably too big for the euro to survive
6: the shock. Last summer, the head of the European Central Bank said he would do whatever it takes to save the euro. In a speech today, Mario Draghi, himself an Italian, didn't mention his native country at all. But he did say that the austerity measures being implemented in Europe are coming at, quote, a heavy social cost. And those costs, says author Johann von Overtfeld, are giving rise to protest.
7: Unemployment rising, uh, especially youth unemployment, for more and more European countries is a huge problem. It is to be expected that that anti-European anti-German mood uh, will be increasing in the coming uh,
6: months. Von Overthveld says that if there's one other lesson to take away from the Italy situation, it's this. The European project, a unified political and economic zone with policies coordinated across dozens of countries, is still far from being a done deal. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. The other big story in Italy is the departing
0: pope. Today, Pope Benedict XVI held his final public audience in St. Peter's Square. He spoke to an adoring crowd of about 150,000. Tomorrow, he officially retires and becomes pope emeritus. Then the process begins for the Catholic Church to choose a new pontiff. Reporter Jane Little covers religion. Jane, first of all, what did the pope say today? Anything revealing?
2: Well, it was a very unusually personal message. When he really let us see into his eight years in the papacy, he talked about moments of joy and light, but also moments that were not easy, uh, which is something of an understatement, I'd say. But uh, he talked about the choppy waters, but said that he knew all along that God was with him and that God would not let the boat sink. I think most people would read that as a a comment on the series of uh, clerical sex abuse crises and scandals that have rocked the church as well as the the recent corruption and
0: intrigue to come out of the Vatican. So Jane, what happens now? Does uh, the Pope just say his goodbyes and then goes away?
2: Well, this was his last public audience. He will now say his farewells to the cardinals who've begun gathering in Rome to uh, decide on his successor. Um, So he's saying his farewells and then he takes off by helicopter tomorrow night for Castel Gandolfo, which traditionally is the papal summer residence not far from Rome. And then the Swiss guard, you know, the guard with their distinctive stripy uniforms Mm. who've guarded the Pope for so long, they will formally be dismissed and uh, be replaced by the Vatican police, signalling to the world he's no longer uh, the Pope. There is now going to be a period, an interregnum, when we have no Pope. Uh, but of course, we're in very uncharted territories here, and that itself has been suggested by how long it took them to decide what this pope would be called. It's taken over two weeks for them to announce that he wouldn't go back to being Cardinal Ratzinger; he would be the Pope Emeritus and retain the title of Benedict XVI.
0: Does he get like one Swiss Guard for the rest of his life? You know, kind no, of like, I'm afraid he yeah. has
2: to give up the Swiss Guard completely. However, he is going to retain, along with the title, uh, he will retain his holiness. He will continue to wear a white cassock. There'd been much. Speculation about what would he be wearing, and the I mean, cassock you not know, really been in this territory for six hundred years. A cassock is the white priestly robe, floor length usually, or just just above the shoe. Mm. Uh, his gold ring, crucially, his fisherman's ring, will be removed from him, and the papal seal will be destroyed at a time of the cardinal's choosing, because when a pope dies, traditionally he has the ring removed and the seal destroyed so there can be no risk of forgeries. He will give up that ring. And also, crucially, he will give up the red shoes. It's uh, long been said that the Pope wears Prada. He's always been seen (laughs) in these shiny, beautiful red shoes. The shoes will go and be replaced by handmade brown shoes from Mexico.
0: I, I imagine there are tons of rituals, like when he has to hand back the hat. (laughs)
2: Well, I I guess, you know, the the key moment will be when the ring goes. And it's crucial that he's being seen to go through these rituals because um, it had been much speculated upon where's he going to live he will go to Castel Gandolfo for about three months and then he will return to renovated apartments within a monastery within Vatican City. Now, some have said, yep, that's good for security and he will retain some privacy there. On the other hand, others are saying, well, is it good to have two popes in the
0: Vatican? is it good to have two popes in the vatican one who's well you know centrally
2: symbolic level no but i suppose this would be the most practical solution he's underlined the fact he's not giving up his ministry this is a new stage of it where he'll pray for the church and meditate and and also i suspect right this is an intellectual a philosopher theologian mm. who who reads and writes um, another question will be whether he will publish uh, because everybody will be parsing everything he says for if there are any even slight contradictions with what his son successor is saying. So maybe he'll write, maybe he'll publish posthumously.
0: So as a private citizen, uh, will he be paying rent on that apartment or does the Vatican cover it for him?
2: I think they have a fairly decent retirement package for priests and uh, I, I think he'll be well taken care of.
0: Reporter Jane Little, who covers religion, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you, Marco.
0: Still to come on the program, Japan's 2011 earthquake and tsunami drew communities
3: together. Now many are falling apart on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. North Korea is perhaps the most cut-off
0: place in the world, but in an unexpected move, the North Korean government has opened up its mobile network to foreigners, which means foreign journalists in North Korea can live tweet and post Instagram photos right from their cell phones, and some are doing just that. Jean Lee is the Korean bureau chief for the Associated Press, based in Seoul. She travels fairly regularly to North Korea, and now Jean is among the first journalists to tweet from inside North Korea. So, Jean, you and AP photographer David Gutenfelder were tweeting and Instagramming from Pyongyang for the past few days. And some of your images are simply remarkable. And for me, I, I think a lot of that has to do with seeing the unknown. So for you, it must feel like a kid in a candy shop.
1: It was exciting. We have been tweeting and posting to Instagram for the past year. We've been working there for two years. Opened a bureau in January. But we've had to do that using an internet broadband connection and setting up our own wireless hotspot when we're back at our hotel. Now, Monday was the first time that we were able to tweet and upload to Instagram and send it out immediately. And that is exciting. It it means that we can get the news out faster. We can get images out uh, in real time.
0: And when you were doing this, did you have government minders by your side all the time? Are they looking at your smartphone screen to see what you're photographing?
1: No, we had our North Korean staff members in the office with us, but they were not looking over my shoulder. And we operate fairly independently. Uh, We're able to shoot pictures as we wish. We were able to tweet as we wish. Nobody takes a look at that before it goes out. Uh, I can't say whether or not people are looking at it after it goes out, but we have quite a bit of freedom to take pictures as we like.
0: You know, what's fascinating, Jean, in a lot of these pictures is just to see the banal daily life in Pyongyang, uh, both in your and David Gutenfeld 's pictures. What did you make of that daily life?
1: These are not images that we would necessarily send on the AP wire. I may not put some of these details in my story. They certainly inform my reporting, but they're little tidbits that I see from our daily routine working there and living there um, that I think would be interesting to share with people outside the country. It's a country that most people do not get to visit. Very few western journalists are allowed to come into the country so it's an opportunity for us to just show what we're seeing on the street hopefully it'll help uh flesh out the narrative
0: i mean it certainly kind of fleshed out the north korean narrative for me but maybe you can tell us about a few of the photographs you've taken that you wouldn't have written about
1: the little things for example uh, the other day when i went into the shop to buy postcards and just coming across these very virulent um, anti-American postcards, just that, oh, that's, that's really interesting. It helps us understand a bit about their political bent. Uh, so I snapped a, a picture of that. You know, food is very interesting. I am based in South Korea, and it's always interesting to me to see how Korean food differs in, in the North and in the South.
0: How does it differ um, in the North?
1: It's a country that's been so cut off from South Korea, so it's some of the names of the dishes are different. And so it's always fascinating for South Koreans in particular to see how food is prepared and what they're called. And it's interesting some of the responses I've gotten to a simple bowl of noodles because it's even spelled differently. It's the same dish with a slightly different spelling. I can share a little bit of that very simple day-to-day life um, with South Koreans who really have very little access to life On the other side of the DMZ,
0: you know, one picture that I think uh, David Guttenfelder took was of typical bar food in Pyongyang, and I see this plate of a fish head and some boiled peanuts, and you know, comparing that to pistachios and chicken wings, I mean, it's just wow. There you go. Pretty much says it all.
1: Exactly. It's a very (laughs) popular snack, what they call anju, and they just they bring out these dried fish and they just rip these things apart. And uh, you eat that with beer. It's a very common snack to have with beer. It's just a little thing, but it's it's fun to see. What's been
0: the response from the regime to your pictures, if any? I mean, do they look at a picture of fish heads and say, wow, is that what the AP wanted to come here to shoot?
1: Nobody has ever said anything to me about our Instagram and our Twitter feeds, and I'll be very curious to see if um, they'll say something now that these feeds have gotten this much attention. But I think that the reason they allowed us to open a bureau is to put some of these images out there.
0: You've got this video uh, posted of a group of kids laughing in front of the camera quite spontaneously. What has been the response of everyday North Koreans to your Instagramming out in the streets and getting these things uploaded quickly? Do they even know?
1: David, I think, has posted some photos on his Instagram feed of those same children. We were at Mansu Hill, which is where those two enormous statues of the late leaders are I looked over and these kids were just mobbing him, wanting to get at his cameras. He usually Mm. carries two or three cameras and one of them had managed to pull one of the cameras off. I mean, they were very, very curious. I took the little video and played it back for them and that's, that's perfectly fine.
0: Have most North Koreans in Pyongyang anyway seen a smartphone? Do they even know what it is?
1: it's hard to say. Uh, They certainly know about different types of cell phones. Uh, They've got several different varieties of cell phones they can choose from. And I'm definitely seeing smartphones in Pyongyang.
0: Now, you landed in Pyongyang on this visit just in time to catch a bit of Dennis Rodman and the Harlem Globetrotters uh, trip there. Does anyone in North Korea know who Dennis Rodman is, who the Harlem Globetrotters are?
1: It seemed from the informal poll that I took that he isn't as well known as uh, Michael Jordan. Most people do. <laughs> surprise. Most surprise. People, yeah, most people do know Michael Jordan. Last Friday, I went into the art studio, which is where they sell, you know, beautiful celadon pottery, and just happened to see drawings of Michael Jordan. <laughs> so, really? <laughs> there is an interest in the NBA.
0: I just want to ask you, finally, Gene, do you think uh, this? Ability now to Instagram and tweet in North Korea. Is this a sign of glasnost?
1: It's certainly exciting for foreigners, but it's still not accessible to the local people. The local people, for the most part, still can't access the Internet. But in a certain sense, just the ability to go from a couple of years ago where you couldn't even take a picture without seeking permission which was the case on my first trip to you know the sense of alienation you feel as well when you have to leave your cell phone at the airport to now being able to take your own iPhone in, stick a SIM card in, upload to Twitter, access things on the internet, and send information out at a moment's notice I mean that that, that is that is something significant, and hopefully that will extend to the local population as well we'll see.
0: Hmm. Bit by bit, indeed. Jean Lee, Korean bureau chief for the Associated Press. She's been tweeting and sharing Instagram photos from North Korea. To see some of her images from North Korea, go to our website, theworld.org. Jean Lee, thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome.
0: And speaking of Twitter and Instagram and all form of social media, you'll find the world in that universe, too. I won't clutter your heads with all our handles. Just stop by and check us out at theworld.org. You'll discover our Twitter and Instagram feeds there. That's where you can find our videos as well and slideshows. It's also where you can subscribe to our daily and weekly podcasts. If you want to follow us right now, though, on Twitter, you can go straight there. We tweet at PRI The World. As for me, I tweet and Instagram at Marco Wurman. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. A Canadian province rolls out a provocative ad campaign to stop people from texting while driving.
1: Ah, there you go again. Driving and being completely enthralled by your crotch. Quick glances, long stares, you just can't keep your eyes off it.
0: We'll hear how that's working out ahead on The
3: World. Eyes. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The question of who gets to immigrate to Israel and why has been a thorny one since the country's founding 65 years ago. Now it's flaring up again amid reports that Israel has begun quietly repatriating immigrants from Sudan. Israel says many Africans have come to the country illegally for economic reasons, but human rights advocates say the Sudanese are political refugees whose lives could be at risk if they're sent home. Reporter Daniel Estrin is following the story from Jerusalem. Now, I understand uh, Israel says all of the Sudanese who've gone home have done so voluntarily, but others say many of them have essentially been coerced. So what's the truth?
8: Well, it's a little bit of both, really, Marco. In the past uh eight months, there's been a new way that Israel has been treating migrants. At first, when they started coming here about six years ago, Israel tolerated them. They'd pick them up at the border when they crossed uh, into Israel from Egypt and uh, ship them on a bus to Tel Aviv and drop them off there. And now they're really uh, rounding up any new uh, migrants and put them in jail and then they tell them that you have a choice we can keep you in jail for uh, many years while we uh, process your applications for uh, refugee status or you can go home and uh, in the last couple of months a lot of people have been opting to go home so while israel says they're going on their own volition Migrants advocates say, well, if you're stuck in jail and your situation is desperate, you might feel that you have no other choice. I gather a a
0: lot of uh, migrants uh, from Africa, from Sudan, have settled in neighborhoods that are rather squalid. But how many uh, immigrants are in jail?
8: About 2,500 migrants are now uh, estimated to be in Israeli detention centers and Over the past eight years, as many as 60,000 migrants, mostly Sudanese and Eritreans, have come across the border from Egypt into Israel. So why does Israel want to send them home? Well, it's a really tricky situation. Israel says that uh, these migrants are a burden. Israel is a small country and can't uh, handle their numbers. Another reason which has been given is that uh, these African migrants threaten the Jewish character of the state of Israel. On the other hand, a lot of Israeli advocates of the migrants say, you know, we have a moral obligation to take care of these migrants. You know, our grandfathers, grandmothers were refugees themselves fleeing the Holocaust and found their new homes here.
0: One activist for the migrants, an uh, Israeli, says uh, these Sudanese, if they get expelled, it's almost uh, certainly going to be death for them when they get home. Why would they face such hostility from the government?
8: Well, Israel and Sudan are technically at war with each other um, they're they're considered hostile countries. Uh, Sudan is uh, ruled by Omar al Bashir who has been indicted by the International Criminal Court on charges of genocide and uh, it 's an Islamist uh, ruler who says that Israel is a mortal enemy. Um, In Sudanese passports, uh, supposedly, it says, you know, the bearer of this passport has the right to go anywhere in the world except for Israel. So when Sudanese are returning to their homeland, and they're found to be coming from Israel, according to migrants and activists here, they say that that can get them into big trouble there.
0: So while reporting this story, Daniel, I'm wondering, did you meet any Sudanese migrants who, you know, how are they feeling right now? It's got to be pretty tense for them.
8: They are really feeling tense. I spoke to one from the Darfur region of Sudan. He's in his early 20s. He now works in a hotel in downtown Tel Aviv. He speaks really great English, really eloquent. And he said that um, he personally knows about 70 people who have gone back to Sudan. He says he's heard that a lot of them were detained at the airport in Khartoum when they arrived. He said he heard that Sudanese authorities confiscated a lot of their property, their documents. And He said that his best friend was killed shortly after he arrived. The way he put it to me, he said, you know, my best friend preferred to die in his own country with dignity and instead of being humiliated in Israel for the sort of in limbo condition that they are in.
0: Such a tough and complex situation. Reporter Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem, thank you very much. You're welcome. It's been almost two years since a massive earthquake and tsunami that devastated northern Japan and caused one of the world's worst nuclear accidents. The reactor at Fukushima went into a triple meltdown, and radiation contaminated much of the surrounding area. The radiation risk persists, leaving people in the region in a constant state of anxiety and stress. One psychologist says suicide, depression, alcoholism, gambling, and domestic abuse are all up in the region. The stress has even created a new phenomenon— Genpatsu rikon, or atomic divorce. Abigail Howard has written extensively on these issues. She's just had a long piece published in the magazine of London's Observer newspaper, where she's a contributor. Uh, so Abigail, right after the earthquake and tsunami in 2011, I was there two months later and saw families come together, united often by tragedy, whole communities bonded together. So how did the Fukushima region go from group survival to group division, divorce in many cases?
9: Well, as one of the um, psychologists that I talked to in the region from the local university said, at the beginning there was a kind of disaster honeymoon period when people came together to, to help each other. And then gradually, as life has ostensibly gone back to normal you know, the stresses have started to to come out and things like the fear of, of radiation has really divided people and it's divided families. Give us, so, give, us uh, exa-
0: give us an example of a family you met and the kinds of issues they're struggling with.
9: Well, I mean, their, their, their issues were, I mean, after, after the disaster happened, the, the woman that I interviewed was, she was only five weeks pregnant at the time. She'd only just discovered that she was pregnant. So, Of course, she was terrified because, you know, the conventional wisdom is in some quarters that radiation is extremely damaging for unborn babies. So she went, but her husband was um, a postman and he had worked there since he was 20 years old. So he felt that he couldn't leave and he couldn't desert his colleagues, which, um, you know, is, is very sort of much part of the culture there. So... They had a big argument about that. She said, well, it's the most important thing that we're together and it doesn't matter about money. But, you know, he, he just couldn't leave. And so she went off by herself with their toddler and they were basically separated for about 18 months, although they did keep seeing each other. But it was very, very hard and they just couldn't reach an agreement about it. So eventually she decided that, well, I'll move back and we'll just have to manage it. And she realized that when I met her earlier this month you know she she realized well, you, you can't actually manage it you know it 's very very hard, and so they you know they still have a lot of of stresses in their life
0: but they 're not divorced
9: no they 're not divorced i mean they 've managed to keep it together, but it's it's been very very hard for them and i mean in 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 some cases, a lot of people you know they haven 't actually got the paperwork to say they 're divorced they're just they 're just split up right. and uh That's happened to a lot of families who are still in that situation and still in that kind of limbo and not really getting any support from the government.
0: I mean, divorce, alcoholism, gambling, domestic abuse is certainly suicide, all signs of depression. Mm. I mean, did you get that sense from psychologists that you spoke with that depression is just kind of seeping across Fukushima?
9: Yes. I mean, you know, in, in not a very obvious way you know i mean the 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 culture there is not really to express these things i think things are quite repressed but um but definitely you know these sorts of things are, are starting to come out and there is a lack of psychological help you know the psychologist i spoke to said she was basically overwhelmed you know she was working a lot with children who also needed an enormous amount of of counseling and there's no there's no dedicated marital counseling for example so um, so these just, people
0: have nowhere to go to, to speak to anybody?
9: Um, well, they, they can find somebody, but, um, you know, there's very few dedicated centers for them. And also it's, it's still a little bit shameful, you know, to, to do that. And there is this kind of taboo against complaining and, you know, expressing your fears about radiation. And so people feel very isolated and very on their own.
0: You, you also write about people from the Fukushima area facing discrimination. Uh, explain mm-hmm. why and give us a few examples.
9: I think that really does go back to, you know, the atomic bombings and Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. And uh, the people after that suffered discrimination with marriage, with jobs. And there was this fear that they were kind of tainted by radiation and um, that ignorance still exists. For example... Um, one <clears throat> woman who, who runs a service offering full body scans to people who want to check their radiation levels. She she told me about this couple who their daughter was in Tokyo and they wanted to go and visit her because she just had a baby. But the hospital said to the to the new mother, please don't invite your parents because uh, you know, you better to be safe than sorry. And um so this couple had turned up at the centre to have full body scans because they you know they were worried and they said you know the the father said i I want to know if i can hold my grandchild in my arms so you know it's a very uh, heartbreaking situation for people and that's a hospital you know saying that the parents are contaminated or possibly contaminated
0: abigail howarth contributor to the magazine of london's observer newspaper thank you
9: thanks very much
0: We have more coverage of the Fukushima nuclear crisis, including a recent interview with guitarist Yuto Kanazawa about the song he wrote in response to the disaster. That's all at (laughs) theworld.org. We learned today of the death of a luminary in the world of classical music, American pianist Van Clyburn. He was 78 and died in his home state of Texas. He gained renown after winning the prestigious Tchaikovsky Piano Competition in Moscow in 1958. When he went there, the Cold War was raging, but with his triumph at the competition, Van Clyburn helped bring about a brief thaw in U.S.-Soviet relations. Vladimir Frumkin is a musicologist and journalist based in Washington. He writes about Russian classical and popular music. So, Mr. Frumkin, take us back to 1958. You lived at the time in Leningrad. The Tchaikovsky competition was taking place in Moscow. What do you recall of Van Clyburn's success at that competition?
7: Oh, yes. It was a smashing success. We were excited and we were amazed because it's for the first time that not the Soviet musician, but uh, American musician won the first prize. Something changed in the atmosphere, you know?
0: Now, the, the story I heard is that the judges at the competition knew Van Cliburn was the top, but this was the Cold War after all. Can we just give the top prize to an American? And they had to consult Khrushchev, the premier. Is that true?
7: Yes, I think so. Khrushchev agreed finally to allow a young American musician to become the number one. Without the general secretary of the party, such decision could not have be been made.
0: So that performance at the Tchaikovsky competition put Van Kliber in in good standing with Russians. How long did the warmth created by his victory in Moscow last?
7: Oh, for a long, long time. I left the Soviet Union in 1974, and he was still loved and admired and well-remembered by millions of
0: people. Did you ever have a chance to meet him?
7: Yes, I was uh, very lucky to meet him personally at the uh, Union of Soviet Composers a Leningrad Branch. When was that? It was the next day after his concert. The head of uh, our Leningrad Branch Union was a composer, Vasily Solovyov Sidoi, an author of the song that was transcribed by Van Cliburn and played as an encore in the Soviet Union. Moscow Nights. And Van played it in his own way, a little bit, you know, jazzy uh, rhythms and harmonies. It was so unexpected and great that the audience got crazy, absolutely crazy after this encore. Wow. And Solovyov Tsydoi, uh, invited him for a reception, and it was unforgettable. I met him personally, and I remember he played the Moscow Nights again. And then, after some toasts, uh, Slavyov Sidoy decided to play with him together on, this, on one piano, and on four hands. And in the end, <laughs> uh, Soloviev Sidoy even uh, used his behind to, uh, to play the bass, Uh, It was a very rude joke, but everybody, you know, uh, appreciated it.
0: That sounds crazy. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It it sounds like Van Cliburn left a lot of great memories and made a lot of friends in Russia.
7: Oh, yes. He uh, was an exceptional figure for us, you know, both musically, also as a hero of a different world, you know. It was our opportunity to see... How could I say, uh, like an ambassador from the West, from America, smiling ambassador, very kind, very approachable, not only uh, musical but in many aspects.
0: Vladimir Frumkin is a musicologist. Thanks very much for telling us about your memories of the late Van Cliburn.
7: Thank you
0: very much. For today's geoquiz, we need your undivided attention, unless you're driving, of course. We're looking for a Canadian prairie province where the crude oil runs thick, the wheat grows tall, and there are almost as many cattle as residents. It's also where the government is trying to stop people from texting while driving. They've launched a new ad campaign called Crotches Kill. Listen here.
1: Ah, there you go again. Driving and being completely enthralled by your crotch. Quick glances, long stares... You just can't keep your eyes off it.
0: The point is not your crotch, obviously, but the mobile device on your lap. The ads remind people that the five seconds it takes to send a text message from your lap is enough time to have an accident. So keep your eyes on the road and try to think of the name of the Canadian prairie province we're talking about. The answer is coming up in a minute. (music) This is P R I. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. So, north of the border and south of your belt. Those were the intriguing coordinates for today's GeoQuiz. And they point us to the Canadian province of Alberta. That's where they've got a new campaign to stop distracted driving. It includes ads with the slogan Crotches Kill. The print ads and billboards show someone looking down at their crotch while driving. The idea? Remind the driver to keep eyes on the road and not on the cell phone in their lap. There are also radio ads, and for men taking a quick bathroom break, the message even gets delivered by a talking urinal puck. You know, those pink disinfecting discs that lie in the urinal bowl.
1: Uh, Distracted by your crotch again, huh? (laughs) Well, it's fine to do it here, but it can kill behind the wheel. Keep your eyes up. Don't text and drive. We know what you're doing down there.
0: I'm not kidding. You approach the urinal and the puck starts talking at you. Parker Hogan is with Alberta's Ministry of Transportation. Beyond the shock value, which is pretty apparent there, Parker, what's the message here?
4: First and foremost, it's put your cell phone, your smartphone away when you're driving and focus on the task at hand, which is driving.
0: And how big of a problem is driving while distracted in Alberta?
4: Well, about a year ago, the government of Alberta introduced new legislation that uh, outlawed the use of cell phones while driving or, or texting or those kind of things. It's a distracted driving law. And in the first year, there's been more than 19,000 convictions. And about 95% of those convictions come from uh, people using handheld devices. So the ban is on all cell phone use or just texting? All cell phone use. The only allowable use is uh, is hands-free Bluetooth
0: and so what is the fine? What is the penalty for driving while distracted? In
4: $172, about 175 U.S.
0: So are men the biggest offenders? Because putting a talking urinal puck in a bathroom is uh, obviously targeting men.
4: That's one piece of the campaign. But yes, the intentionally hard-hitting campaign is to go after that age group, kind of 25 to 34-year-old males. They have the highest conviction rate in Alberta in our first year.
0: I mean, Karachi's kill is a pretty overt campaign. What's been the reaction from the public?
4: Uh, there's been some snickers, but I think it's beginning to get people to talk about it. We know that the preachy message doesn't work, so now we're trying to do it in a, in a bit of a humorous way, in a, a little bit more blunt way, hopefully to uh, get people's attention, and more importantly, by getting their attention, to get them to change their behaviors. Uh, and, hey, at the end of the day... The five seconds that you take to send that text message while you're driving could be the difference between life and death. Get your eyes back
0: on the road. Parker Hogan, press secretary. And Secret- off your crotch. <laughs> Indeed, most importantly. Parker Hogan, the press secretary for Alberta's Minister of Transportation. If you want to see some posters from the very clever Crotches Kill campaign, they are at our website, theworld.org. Parker, thank you. Thank you. Let's meet now a 26-year-old singer from New Zealand who is clearly not distracted, but she may distract you. She's quite a sight with her bleach-blonde hair, thick black eyeshadow, and lots of tattoos. But what meets the eye isn't nearly as captivating as what meets the ear. Here's more from the world's intern, Dylan Rand. You can map Kiwi singer-songwriter Gin Wigmore's musical transformation over the years
10: by the changes she's made to her name. As a young girl growing up in a harborside suburb of Auckland, she was Virginia Wigmore. Then she turned Virginia to Ginny, before finally arriving at Gin at age 14.
11: And I think Ginny's kind of still quite sweet. It's pure, it's a little virginal. So I was like that for a while, and I think from Ginny to Gin, I definitely my music's changed. I think Gin's a lot, I don't know, maybe a little more rougher or, or meaner, or, I'm not sure, but maybe that's me a little bit.
10: Besides sharing her name with a hard liquor, there's plenty about Gin that's rough around the edges. She has tattoos all over her body. She curses like a sailor. And she also owns a taser, because she says you never know when you might get accosted on the street and stabbed. But a taser is nothing compared to the weapon she used to carry around.
11: I used to walk around with a saw, because my brother-in-law told me that was the best weapon. Did you say a sword? A saw. No, a saw for chopping wood. (laughs) He said to me, if you think about it, Jen, it's the best weapon, because you can hold on to it, and they can't get it.
10: Saw's aside her most distinctive feature is actually her voice. It's difficult to describe her voice accurately because there's just so much to say. But some folks online did pretty well. One person said her voice sounds like it has been through a cheese grater, dipped in rhythm and blues, and then used in a tennis match between Joan Osborne and Amy Winehouse. Another wrote that she had an attitude like an old blues woman and a voice to match. Wigmore has her own version.
11: I like to think of myself as a little bit of a cowboy. It's kind of cowboy slash. A little bit rock and roll and then there's a chorus that's got pop in there, you know? But, I don't know, it's a little bit beaten, beaten down. It's a bit of a beaten down vocal.
10: She says that beaten down cowboy vocal comes from a little too much talking, laughing, and whiskey drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Not surprisingly, the lyrics behind the vocals are just as assertive as her voice and personality. Take her song "Man Like That" for instance. It's written as a warning to other women about an ex-boyfriend, who she labels with a four-letter expletive during our interview. Despite all that attitude, Wickmore has welcomed commercial success with open arms. And when I say commercial success, I literally mean success in commercials. "Man Like That" has been used in a Heineken ad. That TV spot also promoted the newest Bond flick, Skyfall, and both she and Daniel Craig make brief appearances towards the end of it. And her song, Don't Stop, served as the backdrop for a Lowe's Hardware campaign, of all things. Wickmore recorded her latest album, Gravel and Wine, in Santa Monica with Butch Walker, an accomplished American musician and producer who also has his fingerprints on Taylor Swift's latest release. But even with lots of time in the States, her most loyal following remains in her home country, New Zealand. Gravel and Wine has been out there for more than a year now and has received a double platinum stamp of approval. Wigmore says all of her hometown support feels like a pat on the back from mom and dad. That sentimental pat would actually fall right where Jen got her first tattoo, which she describes as a big hideous tramp-stamped dragon. She got it when she was 14, and mom and dad didn't exactly approve. For The World, I'm Dylan Rand.
3: I got the
11: disease I've got the me.
0: You might want to be aware that Jen Wigmore's album Gravel and Wine will be out in the U.S. next month. I don't know about you, but I heard Jen first right here on The World. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
3: is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation. Investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International